Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. very welcome in to what is part two of our three-part season I suppose you can call it or our mini mini series with Des Manahan if you listened to last week's episode well if you didn't first of all it's available if you want to hit subscribe and you will find it then in your podcast player or you can just go to watfortheaterarchive.com look for Des Manahan and it'll pop up but in that first episode we kind of went through the early days with Des we went up as far as kind of GNS and we finished up just talking about Buxton and Major General and all that kind of stuff. You can hear all of that if you go back and listen to the first episode. But we then went on, we were talked about the Mikado and the equivalent songs that were in the Mikado, which would have been the Titwillow song. The Titwillow, yeah. yeah that, that's a clever little one. And you see, he's just finished singing, uh, being chased all over the place by her. And that was, again, one of my famous moves in that was that when she when she chases me and I hit the our, our beloved Theatre Royal I get, there's a grip on the side of the little thing moulding and what the audience don't see is I'd love Tom O'Driscoll he was backstage and Tom would hold a hand like that high up so that the audience wouldn't see it was behind the arch you know so my first step would be a simple one my next step then would go onto that hand and then with that, I got the push and I have it up and I ended up on the balcony. Not, not on it, but up with the person in the balcony who immediately got such a fright that she dropped her program down onto the stalls. <laughs> but, you know, those little things worked for me then. I was small, I was light. I was able to move around the place quickly. But then again, when all that is over and the clap down, you slide down and then you're able to turn around and grab as much breath as you can because at that stage you've been galloping and running for five minutes we'll say and then you had to sing Titwillow <laughs> and that was the hard part <laughs> to cool it down and get the breath and the, the, the breath to do it for it. but yeah and it was a clever little song then you see and if you're lucky enough then to have uh, a good Katisha to play opposite then their reaction to the song can be very funny as well and Des would be famous for doing GNS shows performing in GNS shows I wondered what was it in particular that Des found particularly kind of appealing about those shows and what did he try to bring to those shows? What I tried to do always, I always tried to sing the patter song slightly slower than traditional, not to show off my dexterity of words or whatever, you know, but to, to let them people hear. They were so clever. I mean, his writings at Gilbert's were brilliant. And because he was such a... I don't know. I think in his life he was a barrister, but he was never called to the bar. And by not being called to the bar, he was very, very hurt. And I gather 
everything he had a crack at society in England, the upper class that he didn't quite reach into. So you have those Iolanthe, you had the famous March of the Lords, and they're doing, he's, he's sending it all up, you know, and, and saying, look what you're like, this is what you're like, and, you know, really having a go off them. But uh, again, the wordings are so clever. I mean, the nightmare song in Iolanthe, it's a nightmare to sing it, but it's so clever. It's describing a nightmare. And if you had a nightmare, you could see it's how ridiculous it is. You know, at one stage, he can't sleep. The next thing is on a, a ship heading to some place. And the next thing he's the, the crew and the captain are on bicycles riding around. The next thing he's trying to put on shoes, but then he must put a shoe tree in and the shoe tree must be planted. It, you know, the, the weird way that the thing takes place, but all of his stuff is like that. It was all so clever, you know, so yeah. clever. But you do need for an audience to hear it. Now, when you go to a place like Buxton, the audiences turn up with scripts on their lap. And if you missed a word, they'd nearly shout it at you. Really? You, know, you had to be red hot. You really had to do it, you know. I know at one stage, one of the educators said of me, I said, why don't I give master classes in... GNS, you know, explaining it and doing it the way I did it to slow it down and all that sort of thing. <laughs> Needless to say, I came home and forgot about it. <laughs> so it's kind of beyond dispute that Des found great, I suppose, fame and fortune almost in the kind of light opera and operetta such as the GNS and the Merry Widow and ones like that. Why exactly was it that he never actually... I suppose you could say made it in the world of grand opera. I was never a grand opera, you know, vocally I wouldn't have been up to full that. We did um, La Boheme in Cork there about 15 years ago and uh, we did it in Italian. No, I don't speak a word of Italian. Either. So John O'Flynn coached me, but, you know, phonetically broke it down for me and everything else. And I did the best I could. Now, the conductor lovely guy from England, he knew perfectly well I hadn't a clue uh, in terms of the language. But he said, look, you watch me, I'll call you in. That's all you have to do. So in Act One, I play the part of Benoit, who is the landlord. And the four lads are upstairs in the attic, I should say. And they have they owe the rent, the usual thing. So, of course, I go up there demanding the rent. And needlessly, they don't have it, of course. But they start off a clever thing. They start playing, oh, you're looking well today, you know. I bet you're a bit of a diver with the girls. And, of course, I swallow up all this and I show off I'm this and I'm that. And in the singing, questioning, and I'm answering back, you see, the guy playing Colini, a big, um, where was he from? Mid-European guy, a magnificent bass voice. uh, But... Uh, again, he probably didn't know it, much Italian, but more than me, let's put it that way. Anyway, he questions me and I answer. So whatever little slip he made, I was watching him and I got the cue and I answered. Now, to an Italian, we'll say it would have been very funny because I answered the question he's going to ask next. <laughs> so I gave him the answer. Then he asks the question. So whatever little slip happened there, that just that was a very funny one. And again, then at, at the end of that little scene, they make me, you know, they having buttered me up and done all that sort of thing. They say, "Oh, you're a disgraceful man. You're a married man, and you're behaving like that. Get out!" They throw me out and don't pay the rent. 
<laughs> Again, in Act Two, uh, I played the part of Alcindora, who is the sugar daddy. So, the what I call her, Musetta, one of the leads in the show, beautiful soprano. She comes on and she wants to get back with her boyfriend, who's also on stage. We're in the restaurant or the cafe at the time. And she's screaming and, you know, coming in. And I'm carrying in bags and bags of presents I've bought her and everything she wants I'm getting for her. But all she's trying to do is attract the attention of the ex-boyfriend. And she leads into this magnificent song, Musetta's Waltz. It's a beautiful aria. But while that's going on, then... I'm trying to tell her, behave herself on that. Now, on the Cork Opera House stage, the full depth is used in the restaurant scene. But poor Des and Fiona are set in the very back. Now, at least Fiona is a soprano voice. It'll come out. But my little protests at behave yourself, don't do this. I might as well be just mouthing it. Because the front line then of the tenors and, and baritones and others of the second soprano Mimi, they're all down front on the footlights. So they have, they're literally singing out to the audience. I'm back at the, I might as well be miming the, the Bible or something, meant nothing. But that, you know, I would never have had a big enough voice to be operatic standard. I would sing operatic songs, you know, like we all sang happy moments and all, you know, these ones, nice, pleasant ones and that, ballad opera ones you get away with but otherwise not into Grand Opera. So really, Grand Opera, I have been in, I have performed in them, not, but you couldn't say I was a Grand Opera singer. <laughs> but I enjoy them. I mean, yeah. they're, they're still performances, and I would still be classed as very good in acting the parts, yeah. even if the voice wasn't coming up. So there was that one part in The Merry Widow that Des played about 13 times. And what kind of a part can you play over the course of maybe 50 years, 13 times? If you think back to that first one, 1959, and then on up to last one would have been about 10 years ago. I did concert versions of it as well. In Cork, they're very good at it. You know, in City Hall, they might do a concert version purely just standing on stage. Then sometimes they would costume the front line, you know, in that. that. But I was calculating, I've done it about 13 times you know, over the period of time because I've done it and done it. And, oh, I was called in at the last minute now for in Dublin to do it in the concert hall on one occasion when the lad playing the part literally got sick and had to go to hospital. So I was brought up the day before. So I knew the whole show inside out. That didn't matter. It's just the dance routine would be different. So I had to learn the dance routine for women, 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 that famous number in it. All men doing their little bit and that. But, you know, you, you, you slot in very quickly. But you, you, you do manage. Um, I would say, again, possibly the dance routines would be proving, <laughs> now that I've reached 85, be a little bit more difficult. <laughs> and in fact, <laughs> I might just admire them from the side, <laughs> look on. But, um, I know, I enjoyed doing it. Yes, it was a big range, but again, the part, again, he was, he was the ambassador. He was a well, fool of a character. So he could be any age. He, exactly. He yeah. was enjoying life in Paris in the, as, as the ambassador. He never wanted to go back home as anything else, just to enjoy the high life. And he had a lovely young wife. And the young wife was being approached by every nasty man 
in Paris, trying to get in well with everybody. And I could, I was sort of poo-pooing and say, oh, no, no, I'm so lucky. I have this wonderful lady and she's eyes only for me and all this. And she's gone in every direction. Anyway, it's just, that's all part of the fun of it. And it's good fun. And the show is actually very funny if it's well done and, as I say, underplayed. <laughs> it's very good. For such a long career, it was worth asking Des, were there actually any parts that he felt may have slipped through his fingers over the years? We didn't. We never did uh, the gondoliers. That I don't know why. And that and there's a, two parts in that would have been lovely to have gone on. Uh, again, what other one? Well, I mean, there's loads of GNS which are not box office. Yeah. You know. So I would. We were based basically heading for box office all the time. So big tree, really. Yeah, big tree for pirates and. Ireland, in, say, in a forum. Yeah. 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 A, group, a group of five or six, we did uh, The Yeoman of the Guard as well down in, in uh, the Everyman Theatre in Cork. And that, again, that's another lovely part for Jack Point in that. And that in this case, he's a sad comedian, if you like. You know, He ends up not getting the girl who he thought he always would. And he falls down on stage. So it's your interpretation in the end of whether he is dead or just collapsed because she has gone off with another. You know, that's the end of the show. The curtain comes down on that. And oftentimes, Ray Jeffrey wouldn't do a um, curtain call because you're dead, mm-hmm. you know. And if we look wrong to walk out on stage with a big smile on your face and, and applaud, <laughs> so he'd cut it out for that. But no, I, I really, I suppose, I don't know. I mean, there are obviously loads and loads of GNS parts, which would be wonderful. Again, big patter song, but um, it just, they weren't box office. You know, mm-hmm. They wouldn't draw a crowd here. And in fact, on, well, nowadays, they wouldn't draw anything. You know? And I would say even in Buxton, I think now, I'm not sure now. Is Buxton they, finished? I think, here? yeah, I yeah. think they've moved it elsewhere. But I think even now, the, the audience for that are probably all my age. You know what I mean? And... I do know the second time we went, there was a gap of 10 years and I met a couple, husband and wife, who came over to me, congratulated me on my performance in Iolante, which was 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, that, uh, that was their highlight. They'd never seen anything as good as that performance. And they were really with their books and everything else. They were lifelong supporters of GNS. So, you know, you got that happening because they they didn't mention the show we were in. Mm. <laughs> so that was a bad thing. <laughs> so we got the message. And for all that talk of festivals, would the Watford International Festival of Light Opera work if it was brought back again today? I suppose it would work with Irish societies because I would say probably the standard of the Irish society is probably as good as anything that was coming over in that. Um, now, whether we can afford it, because you know, it was, you know, okay for local societies, they could eventually go home that night or the next day. Uh, all right, for the English societies, where it was a big expensive weekend for them, and, you know. But it, Irish societies could probably do it. But again, what shows are there now that you can mount overnight? I mean... They're huge. The sets are huge that are coming through now. Um, I suppose you couldn't do a Miss Saigon or, no. you know, these kind of huge sets coming in or, or any of them because 
the fact is that our local societies are also good. What they put on is excellent. And I mean, they don't spare a penny when it comes to putting on a proper set. What they no. need, they do it and they get it and it's done. So if it did come back on, the, the local rivalry would be huge, absolutely huge. <laughs> to a point of, <laughs> I don't know, handbags are done. But um, I would say, yeah, I would love to, you know, there's great societies up around Galway and in those areas and get them to come down if they can afford it. Yeah. It's, it's money, really, the whole thing. It's worth asking, did Des realise early in his career that maybe comedic roles were the way that he was meant to go? I think I realised that, look, I was never going to play the leading man, you know, the handsome leading man and that. And looking at myself, I said, I, I never minded being small and I would love to be put up against a tall opposite number and just make the fun of it, literally hitting up and looking up. And, you know, there is, okay, I was lucky in that whatever talent I developed, I developed a talent of underplaying, you know, n- never over the top. Never over the top. Keep it under all the time. And less is more. And get off while you're ahead. Don't overdo anything, you know. Because of that, then, all the funny bits, you know, a movement of your eyebrow or an eye or a finger, you, you never needed to do big things. That one did it, you know. And that caught on with the audience and they enjoyed it. <laughs> it's that way. It worked for me and it was good. Something that's easy to forget is that there's actually had a career in the famous tops of the town competition as well, mainly as, well, starting as a musical director, but also on stage. Yeah, in, in the early days now, for the first good many years, I was the musical director for banks and finance, you know, and I enjoy that immensely, you know, because I used to love harmony. I loved teaching them and I had good. And in those days, who was it? Sean Cotter. Remember him, that adjudicator? He referred to me as his favourite MD and I used to win awards just as that because he enjoyed the harmony as well. <laughs> you know? yeah. This is a sucker punch. Um, they wouldn't go far. Yeah, the tops were, were wonderful, but cutthroat at the highest. I mean, I can remember <laughs> we were, Mona and myself, we were living in Dunmore at the time and one evening, Betty and Billy, Mulcahy and Patsy Sheridan came out and we were having a cup of tea in a lovely social evening when somehow or other the tops got involved and we ended up having an almighty row before cooling off and having a big laugh of it all. But it was that, you know, the ten, and it, we were talking at that time, the tops were probably finished. We were, we were all going back on that. What you did and what you didn't do and how you cheated and how you didn't cheat and who you was in it. <laughs> And I, it, it was really, I, I, you know, it was fun. It was great fun. But we were, I can remember after one event in which um, we were sitting, oh, yeah, we didn't even make the local final. Now, that was really bad. <laughs> I remember Charlie Boland, God love him, sitting out in front of the theatre. I was sitting on the bonnet of a car parked outside in tears, you know. How could we not have won? <laughs> and it wasn't even winning. We didn't even get into the final. Oh, gosh, it's great. But it, the tops, again, the, the, the feeling, you know, you would look up, well, it's not in it now anymore, Flaggy Lane, and you'd look up Flaggy Lane at, say, four in the afternoon, 
and the school kids would be all queuing for their parents. And the parents would come along at six o'clock and tell them, go home and get your dinner now. <laughs> they were queuing up for their places in the gods. And it, you know, the, the, if you stood in the middle of the <laughs> Parnell Street and held up a ticket, you'd have been killed, <laughs> literally, in order in the rush to get it. But there was there were things that we used to, you know, have going off the committee, then we'd be annoyed with them. And suddenly you'd walk in to the theatre and you had no ticket, you know. And you looked over and you spotted the eye of a commission member and he, he just gave a little nod like that. Now, you were delighted because you knew he had a ticket for you. But, of course, when you didn't have one and you were looking at him doing it for others, you yeah. know, that's yeah. You know, yeah. it, 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 it was all in that. It was great fun. It was great fun. And I suppose, I don't know who would be the beginning of the end, whether it was Waterford Crystal or what, but... You know, we had 14 groups in it originally, early days. And then after a few, someone might come along and say, Wayne, would you play with our group instead and we'll pay, you know, we'll organise this and that. So you'd come out of one group. That killed that group. You know, it killed the heart of it because they knew what they were picking, you know. They did the same with me and they did the same with others eventually. It was Waterford Crystal and whoever else could afford to put on a show. Yeah. And the Waterford Crystal, at the time, okay, they were lucky. They had their own premises to rehearse and cost nothing. They had their own transport. Yeah. You know, they had everything that was going to help put on a good show. So, yes, they deserved what they got, and that, but they were able to afford it. Again, money came in and it was money that killed it eventually. Yeah, All the shows ended up, we can't afford it. You had to have a level and that was it. Yeah. 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 And at that point, then you went. I remember you went from being in the pit onto stage. Onto the stage, onto yeah, exactly. Stage. In that. You got to the, the national final. We did, yeah, we did with that, yeah. yeah. Again, not mentioning any names, but we were back, we were trying to finish our show, and I can remember being backstage just before we all go on for the finale, and the act before us was still going on, and on and I could see poor old Dermot down in the pit. Dermot Graham tried to hurry it hurry it up, you know, trying to get that time up yeah. for the the hour and all that business. And being worried about it. And I was standing beside Gay Byrne backstage. He was the compare at the time. And Gay looked at me and shook his head. He said, It's gone on too long. It's killing it. It's pulling it down and we'll be rushing the last bit. But again again, that wouldn't have been the only reason. In general, I would say always the choreography of the Dublin shows was ahead of ours. No matter what way you looked at it, those kids in Dublin were brought up from the Billy Barry School of Dancing or whatever school it was, and they were without nerves. They didn't care. They would fling their legs up there. Okay, they were properly dressed and properly covered in every way. Nothing wrong with that, but they just they didn't, you know, they were brave and and it showed it was just very good so they could dress up things whereas we would win the comedy we would win the individual singing or something like that but then on presentation and performance the dancing built it up so we didn't we, we didn't win you know, we, we, we couldn't complain you know. we did complain <laughs> needless to say we, were we did complain exactly and then we hated every adjudicator and what do they know <laughs> When we got to the 1990s, there seemed to be always a cameo role 
in the productions of the day for Des Manahan. That's how it sort of tapered out, like, you know, into the shows. And of course, the last, the last two was what, The Man of La Mancha and uh, Cats, yeah. you know, different types of shows, but little parts that suited perfectly. And they weren't demanding, you know, in terms of rehearsal, you know, uh, yeah. the show like Mancha, the Man of La Mancha, you were doing your bit and then you were gone and that. So you, were, you didn't have to be at rehearsal every night and all this business. You were treated kindly <laughs> and the same with cats you know you just in do your bit and go up and they would manage without you for other rehearsals you know knowing that so that's okay to do that so as i said at at the end of it all and at, looking at me age and i think it's about time to sort of hang up the boots and let the youngsters <laughs> You know, youngsters of 60 and 70 get a chance to get in <laughs> and do what they can I thought as well it was worth asking Des over the years, were there any youngsters that stood out to him that he could see coming through the ranks? Well, one one of the, you know, I can remember, say, putting on any of the shows we were in and in which I was getting, you know, a lead role and the comedy and all this, getting huge applause of that. But I can well remember that when the show would end and uh, the curtain, final curtain comes down and uh, There'd be people backstage, but there would be always one, always one, Richie Hayes, little Richie. And I would say to him then, he said, do what I do, play up to being small, and you'll have no money. He did. He, he had the, ad, ad, I would say, the great added advantage of having a great voice. He could blast out those high notes and... You know, Richie had a lot. He he would have been, I suppose, the most talented. Obviously, Brian Flynn, you know, Brian showed his talent straight off in that. And again, you'd say to yourself, where does it come from? But it was up there in the head, you know. You, you'd wonder how he just comes up with the ideas and the whole thing. But he did, and uh, he, he made it, unfortunately. He did last the pace, but that's life. Here in, in Ireland, you might be, say, or in Waterford, you might be a big fish in a small pond. God, over in London, yeah. the pond is an ocean yeah. and you're just one of billions of fish. You know, it has to be said that one of the great joys of talking to Des Manan is you don't actually have to do much talking. You just prompt him and he goes off into just this wonderland of stories. And that's part two of the chat with Des Manhan. So I hope you enjoyed that. There's still one more part to come. As I said, I'm splitting this up into small sections just so people can have a listen to it over a short period of time on your way to work or on a walk or on a commute or something like that. If you want to catch all of these episodes, as I said, you can go to your podcast player, hit subscribe. They'll download automatically every week. You don't have to do anything. They'll be there waiting for you. Uh, you can also listen to them on the website, watfortheatrearchive.com. It's not just a Facebook page. There's a whole archive of audio there as well if you want to go enter whatever you want hit return you never know what might pop up on the screen in front of you other than that thanks for your company for the last one I think it's half an hour or so or maybe a little less same time next week for episode 3 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.